Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us. I just had the pleasure of talking with Darren LaHue about his new book, which just came out in a new paperback edition in 2014, What Did the Romans Know? An Inquiry into Science and Worldmaking, and it initially came out with University of Chicago Press in 2012. I'm very excited about this book. It's one of the things that you'll probably get from um, listening to Darren's side of the conversation is that he's a wonderful writer. It's a, just a very vibrantly, sparklingly written book that was clearly written by someone who was having a lot of fun um, with the material, and that makes it such a pleasure to read as a reader. But one of the other really wonderful things about it is that this is a book that I think very expertly and seamlessly blends history and philosophy of science in a way that takes a very detailed, a very carefully wrought story of world making and of the very, um, the elements of world making that have to do with gods and nature and law in an early Roman context and uses that story of world making of what it means to talk about and think about early Roman science to serve an additional purpose of informing and helping us think about some really pressing problems in the philosophy of science. It never feels cobbled together. It never feels like these are two halves that are uh, sort of uncomfortably related to each other. Instead, in a way that's really, really hard to pull off and is done beautifully in this book. The historical and philosophical accounts of early Roman science really seem seamlessly integrated. Um, So it's a really beautiful model of how to do work that brings together what tend to be treated in many of our disciplinary contexts as two different fields in the service of bringing us into um, just also a bunch of fascinating stories. You'll hear about garlic and magnets. If you read the book, you'll read about astrology, you'll read about Galen, you'll read about Optics, and you'll also read about some important questions about you know, what it means to understand as a historian how to interact with world making and knowledge making in other contexts, both contexts in the past, but also contexts um, that are just culturally divergent, if not temporarily, from a perspective that doesn't judge whether those beliefs that are different from yours are true or are false. So this is all to say, it's a really wonderful book. I learned so much from it. And it was not only a pleasure to read, but it was really, really a pleasure to talk with Darren about it. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening. And I hope you also have a chance to pick up the book and work through its arguments. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm here today with Darren LaHue to talk about his new book, What Did the Romans Know? An Inquiry into Science and World Making. Welcome to New Books in STS, Darren, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. I loved the book. I think it's an amazing contribution to both the history and philosophy of science, and I'm really grateful for your time. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm, uh, thrilled to be here. So, Darren, could you start off, um, or start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the history and philosophy of science, and perhaps to early science in particular? 
Um, it's a bit of a, a funny story. As a 18 year old undergraduate, I, I was picking my very first courses at the University of Waterloo and flipping through their course catalog, which at the time was a phone book like physical object, and came across this course in ancient Greek. And I couldn't believe that such a thing existed coming from the sort of working class town I grew up in. And it, it messed with my brain in such a way that I thought it hysterically funny and signed up for the course and uh, ended up getting a minor in Greek uh, and major in philosophy. And uh, from there, went on to graduate work in history and philosophy of science, mostly just chasing particular projects. I had a fantastic idea for my master's thesis on uh, uh, the history of irrational numbers in ancient Greece. It turned out that there was nothing to do there uh, that I could find. The evidence trail just dried up, and I never ended up doing it. But the stage was set, and I was off playing in, in that field, and uh, haven't looked back ever since. Great. So the book that we're talking about today looks at Rome in particular and Roman world making. And it looks at Rome from about the first century BC to the second century AD, following different contexts of fact making. It's also a masterful integration, as I've mentioned briefly before, and will continue to mention, I'm sure several times in the ensuing conversation, of a very sensitive approach to historical context as a way to inform and expand and develop a philosophy of science that both, I think, informs the particular context you're talking about and also helps us think more broadly about the possible relationships between history and philosophy of science. So there are lots of other aspects of the kind of work that the book is doing, and we'll talk about those in turn. But to get us perhaps started on that path, could you say a little bit about how you came to this particular topic? How did you start working on world-making and fact-making in the Roman context, and what brought you to the decision to craft this book-length object in the way that you did? Um, everything started with just my coming across a chance passage in Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, in which he uses this throwaway line uh, where he's talking about uh, the sympathies and antipathies in nature, which sympathy and antipathy is taken as a couple of uh, cognate physical forces for a lot of uh, a lot of our history in the history of science. It's a long time when those were actually active forces in the same way that gravity is now. And they they have various effects in the world. For Ptolemy, that's how um, astrological influence comes down and causes things to happen on Earth, is that we have these sympathies with things in the heavens. Our bodies are physically sympathetic with the heat and the cold and the wet and the dry qualities of the various planets. And so these reactions happen in concert. And one way of thinking about this is just uh, the idea of sympathetic vibration. If you've ever played the piano, you hit a C note and passively all the other C strings in the piano start to ring very quietly in the background. And that's a phenomenon that we still call sympathetic vibration. Um, and in antiquity, that was thought to happen not because of the propagation of sound waves, but because of this force called sympathy. And it had all these other effects like astrological influence and so on. And so when Ptolemy's talking about sympathy, he throws in this example. He says, well, we're all familiar with this phenomena. We know, for example, that if you have a particular kind of wound, if we treat it with a medicine that's antipathetic to the wound, it will cure the wound. Just in the same way as if you if you accidentally get garlic on a magnet, the magnet will stop working. And it struck me as being profoundly weird that he would throw in this thing about garlic and magnets. If you get garlic on a magnet, the magnet will stop working, as if this was a completely unproblematic fact, as if it was just something that was totally obvious 
to everyone. And so I started to chase down instances of this claim, and there are more than a few of them. They don't actually start to disappear until the 15th or 16th century AD. And so from the first instance of this claim, which is in Plutarch, uh, or, Tol- or, or sorry, Pliny actually has it. Uh, the first one that I want to talk about is Plutarch. Um, from Pliny and Plutarch's invocation in the first century AD through to uh, the death of the garlic magnet claim, one of the things that everybody says, or not everybody, but a great number of people, surprising number of people say, is that we know that this is true from experience. And that, again, I find a remarkable claim. But then it occurred to me, and this is what got the whole book going, it occurred to me that I actually have no idea from experience whether or not garlic cancels out the effects of magnets. I have lots and lots of good reasons for believing that this is not the case, but I have never, in fact, tested it. And it was that insight into uh, the fact that Ptolemy, that I was alarmed at the way that Ptolemy was dropping this this wrong idea, this this false claim into his proof as if there were no problem with it, and that I could see that there was immediately a problem with it intuitively, but at the same time, didn't actually have any experience that would disprove it. And so it finally came to me that my, my disproof of the garlic and magnet claim was no more or less uh, empirical than Ptolemy's argument for it. That in fact, our arguments were, were very much parallel. It was obvious to him, so he claimed it was true. And it was obvious to me that it was false, and so I thought it was false. And just exploring that tension, just trying to figure out how it is that that claim comes to be unproblematic from both sides. That it's unproblematic for Ptolemy to say that it's true, and it's unproblematic for me to say that it's false, apparently. Uh, trying to trace how that happens and then explore the tensions in that started to push me into all kinds of questions about why it is we think uh, that what we know about the world is true. And so it's become a very much larger epistemological question about how the sciences make uh, uh, claims about what's happening in the world, and then also a philosophy of science question about uh, whether or not we're justified in believing uh, that the theoretical entities of our sciences, the things we can't see, like gravity, uh, uh, like electrons, that we can't actually physically observe with our eyes and, and senses, what justification do we have, or do we have any justification for claiming that those things are real? And so the problem ended up exploding out in, in rather a large way, uh, but it all starts off ultimately with the little this little issue about garlic and magnets. And Right. And it's all connected. So it explodes out, but it's all part of the same web. And it's one of the really wonderful and beautiful things about the book. So to get to Garlic and Magnets, which is the focus of the sixth chapter, we have to start at the beginning. And of course, at the very beginning of the book, we have the title, and with uh, the subtitle is An Inquiry into Science and World Making. So at the very beginning of the book, you bring us into the question, okay, if we're going to talk about a Roman world, what does it mean to talk about the Romanness of the world? And what does it mean to talk about and understand a world. And so you take us into both sides of what might otherwise seem to be a really simple statement and really show the 
really the beauty and the complexity of um, what's embedded in that seemingly simple statement in a way that I think um, is kind of refracted throughout the book. So let's start there. What's Roman about this world that you are bringing us into? And what does it mean to study and understand a world in the way that you're doing it here in the book? The, the issue of the Romanness of the world is uh, the one that actually came into the the project at a sort of a middle to late stage. Um, I hadn't actually set out to write a book on Roman science. I really did just start out trying to explore the implications of uh, the epistemological implications of garlic and magnets, but it very quickly became apparent that most of the people I was working on were writing in Latin. There was Cicero, there was Seneca, Ptolemy himself writes in Greek, but I was very much working in the Roman period. And one of the things that had been annoying me for quite some time going back to my previous work on, on astrological weather prediction, was that uh, historians of science tend to see ancient science as just Greek science, and the Romans kind of warm it up a little bit, um, transmit it, translate it, but don't really add anything new. This is a, a very common view, and it still crops up again and again. Uh, people still challenge me on it as well uh, when I start talking about it at conferences and so on. Uh, but I... I it became apparent to me that there really is something characteristically interesting or something interesting and also characteristically Roman going on in Roman period science. And some of this has to do with just simply emphasizing the social context, for example. It doesn't make sense to talk about Greek science when it's happening under a Roman imperial umbrella, when all of what we might think of, if we were to take modern parallels, uh, the funding opportunities, opportunities for patronage, uh, career advancement, when all of those things are happening under the auspices of a very uh, dominant cultural system that is not Greek, it's Roman, how much sense does it make to talk about the science as being Roman. Uh, you know, was Einstein, when he was working in Princeton, was he doing German science in some sense, or was he doing American science? And I think it's a, a sort of productive question to ask. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe maybe you could argue it both ways in the case of Einstein, I don't know. But, but as I started to probe it, what started to become apparent to me was that there were features of Roman period science, things that Cicero was doing, things that Seneca was doing, things that Pliny was doing, that you don't see or don't see as clearly in the Greek predecessors. And the second thing that happens is you get folks like Pliny and Cicero explicitly saying, we're doing this better than the Greeks ever did. And that's not something you'd see reflected in, in modern uh, histories of science. The sort of joke that goes back to when I first started working on this is, is some turn of phrase along the lines of, uh, when you use the phrase Roman science, the Roman bits aren't science and the science bits aren't Roman. And and it's that that I was working against and trying to show that, no, in fact, there's quite an interesting set of very large theor theoretical concerns that come together in Roman science, specifically around uh, the theological implications of the study of nature that you don't see in the same way in Greek, uh, the, the legal implications of the study of nature. Folks like Cicero trying to claim that you could establish an entire uh, political system, judicial system, and in fact write the very laws of the Republic 
by looking at what is natural in the world and extrapolating that down into what would be just in a, in a society to implement as a law. And at the same time, and this is, this is in fact maybe the newest bit in Rome, looking at the legal theory and saying in what ways is nature operating in a law-like manner. And so we start for, maybe not for the first time, but in, in a much bigger way than what we've seen before in Greece, we start seeing uh, a great deal of talk about the law-likeness of how nature works. And so uh, the foundations of what we think of as our concept of laws of nature run back into some of these discussions that are taking place most fruitfully in Rome in the, in, from the first century BC through to the second century AD. Mm-hmm. And so that's new, and I think that's important. You know, it's true. Uh, uh, you know, there is no Roman Euclid writing some foundations of mathematics type textbook, but the larger theoretical superstructure of Roman science is unique and very, very interesting, and I think important for how we conceptualize science to this day. And so, thank you so much for that. And the first chapters of the book really explore um, a number of the elements of this Roman science and this Roman world making that you've just described the connection between science and laws. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Cicero. And all of this is embedded in also an exploration of what it means to talk about a world. So at several points in the book, you talk about um, what you call a threefold chord of nature, law, and the gods that make up the Roman world. And we're going to see this um, coming up again and again over the course of our conversation, I think, and definitely over the course of the chapters. So as we move into chapter two from chapter one, which sets the stage and introduces some of the main concepts that are going to recur throughout the book, we look at um, a case study in which you're showing us the ways that Roman ideas about nature interacted with ideas about theology and politics. And this is this threefold chord um, that we're going to follow throughout the book. So the second chapter does this by exploring the work of Cicero, and especially three works of Cicero, on the nature of the gods, on divination, and on fate. Um, So among the many kinds of things that the chapter does, and um, I'll say for listeners, I'll I'll talk a little bit um, just to kind of highlight some of these right now, because we could easily talk for the next hour just about this chapter. It's really fascinating. Um, So you talk about the importance of divination to Roman understandings of the world. You talk about the importance of um, divination in terms of action, not just in terms of belief. So there are a lot of ways that this is informing how we think about connections between theology and science. Now, one of the things that you talk about here is something that you just mentioned, which is the way that Cicero used nature to ground his understanding of a political system that he's fighting for. And in this part of the story, seeing an observation becomes really important. You tell us in this part of the story that the careful observation of higher order aspects of nature, in your terms, leads to proper ethical behavior for Cicero, both between people and between people and the gods. So because observation is such an important part of this story, can you talk a little bit about that, the importance of seeing an observation in terms of the work you're doing in this part of the book? Um, the it's funny because seeing an observation, in a sense, come in towards the end of the chapter after I've already been hammering away at, at uh, Cicero's conception of natural law. But the basic idea is that uh, Cicero is himself what we call a natural law uh, theorist. He believes that the way to come up with 
uh, just the most just kind of laws is to look at what nature uh, would have us do. What is in our nature as as a species, as human beings, as a society, uh, and and what would be the right way to behave in order to act according to that nature? And he has a, he has a much uh, he has sort of an elevated idea of what human nature is. We live in this society with the gods, and in order to understand what our nature is, and in order to ground the laws in nature in this way, we need to look at nature. We need to observe what it is that nature does. And he doesn't say in that instance, well, what we should look at are things like um, wasps parasitizing uh, caterpillars, you know, injecting them with eggs and then having their babies eat their way out. That's not the natural uh, order of the world that human beings uh, are, uh, or that's not the way that human beings are naturally constituted. He could do that. This is a thing that you see in some, um, Thrasymachus, for example, in Plato, uh, says that the order of nature is that the, the strong destroys the weak, is, you know, and, and, and uh, rules over the weak. But Cicero doesn't say that. Cicero goes instead to a much nobler view of human nature. And he does this by, instead of looking at the little nitty-gritty details of nature, instead pulling back to a very, very broad brush view, to a, a sort of faded back, large picture view of nature, and says that what we see when we look at nature is, in fact, this order and beauty in the way that everything uh, um, works together with everything else. And everything is clearly made by a divine beneficence, right? The gods are good, the gods like us, and they've made everything to be the best for us. Now, Cicero is himself borrowing very heavily here from the Stoic tradition, the Stoic theological tradition, uh, but it's pretty clear that he, he thinks this is pretty much right. And, and so he points to observing the beauty and order in nature as the first step, or the foundational step, I should say, in coming to frame just laws for a just society. And having said that, what I also try to do in the book is to continuously point back at the time in which Cicero is making this argument, because he's got a purpose in mind when he's doing this, and it's very much a mundane day-to-day -day purpose. He's, he's, he's acting as a conservative uh, politician trying to keep the old Roman Republican system running, which is a you know, it's a, it's a predecessor of our modern representative democracies in many ways. Um, it's a little weird to call it a democracy, but it's much more democratic than what follows after the death of Caesar, which is a, essentially a monarchy or an, an, an imperial system in which there's this emperor who rules over everything. Cicero was very much trying to prevent that. And he's writing these philosophical works on divination, on the nature of the gods, on fate, where he's exploring these ideas of grounding um, uh, human law in nature. He's writing these at this crucial time in Roman history, just just before Caesar's about to get assassinated. And so this is his last attempt to try and frame out a set of ideas for his Roman audience to try and keep what he sees as the only just uh, political system propped up and continuing to run. He obviously sees it needs improvements, uh, but it's remarkable how similar the legal system he frames out is to the actual existing uh, Roman uh, legal and political system. And so the, the whole point of observation in that is that if you're going to ground your your ethics or your laws, and, and Cicero would see those two things as being uh, uh, two sides of the same coin, if you're going to ground your ethics in what is natural, then you need to look at nature. But you need to look at nature in this kind of informed philosophical way with this trained eye 
that is ready to see the beauty and order of nature as the primary aspects, showing then the beneficence of the gods, and then calling us as as dutiful Romans to a certain kind of piety towards the gods. And by piety, Cicero means not not belief, but in fact, just action with respect to the gods. So we have to perform uh, our, our ancestral rituals, uh, such as augury and divination, as part of consulting the gods in the legal system. And this goes on and on and on. But the basic idea is that if you're going to root your ethics in nature, you need to look out at nature, but you need to do so in this trained philosophical kind of way. Thank you so much. Um, and you'll, you'll notice that I'm kind of picking out little bits of the chapters um, just um, to make sure that we get to as many of the chapters as possible. But there's a ton of stuff um, just to mention for listeners that's also um, in, in all of these chapters that really carefully develops all these ideas. So you just mentioned um, as part of this, of course, threefold chord, um, nature, the gods, and politics, or nature, law, and the gods, rather. We've talked about the gods. The next chapter really takes us into the importance of law um, and the relationship between nature and law. And one of the first things that you mentioned, I think, in discussing the genesis of the book was the idea that um, the book is arguing against um, actually a tendency to locate the emergence of laws of nature within really the early modern period, right? And instead, um, one of the things that you said just a little while ago is that we can see an idea of laws of nature in the Roman context. This this seems to be a really important um, theoretical contribution that the book is making to how we understand the history of science. So could you talk a little bit about that? How, what's important for you about the fact that uh, you locate laws of nature in this Roman context? And and what's the contribution that you're hoping to make um, by emphasizing this? Um, it's this, uh, where to start? Um, I know it's a huge, it's a huge question. Um, Well, you talk, for example, um, one of the things that you bring up here is you're kind of showing us, this is one of the things I really loved about this part of the book. Um, you're showing us that, uh, among other things, there's a kind of tendency that we have um, to like focus on the terminology, right? When we locate laws of nature historically. And you're showing us that, no, if we look at the content instead of the kinds of arguments, it's actually a really different way of locating this idea historically. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. One of the the more uh, contentious claims I make in the book is a sort of guiding principle that, that I have, which is, um, Frequently in the history of science, you get this periodization. You have ancient science, you have medieval science, you have early modern science. And although the term scientific revolution is is um, currently under some discussion and rethinking as a concept and as a heuristic concept as well, um, one of the things you see again and again and again is that claims by historians of science that some fundamental thing that currently defines what we think of as science, some methodological experiment or um, uh, one of these big things that that you can put your finger on and go, that's something we do now that the ancients didn't do. That first emerged in the early modern period. That first emerged in the scientific revolution. You see these kinds of claims very, very frequently. And every time I see them, uh, so far, I haven't seen one yet, where I I couldn't say, hang on a second, there's a lot of that going on in antiquity, you're just not noticing it. Um, And so I've adopted a position that, uh, as a result of this, that that sees 
the changes in how we do science, and I'm using the term science here. Some historians of science don't like me to use the term science when I'm talking about antiquity. We could call it the inquiry concerning nature following Jeffrey Lloyd, if we like. Uh, I'm going to use the word science just because it's shorter than that. But our interactions with nature and our attempts to understand nature change, I think, more gradually over time than a lot of people uh, tend to think. And, and so the work on uh, um, the idea of laws of nature in, in this chapter comes out of that background where the claim has been um, for quite some time now that the idea of laws of nature emerges only in the early modern period. And depending on who you read, it's sometime after, say, 1570 or 1640, and uh, different people have different starting dates. And one of the things that, that they point to is that when you look back in antiquity at phrases that we would translate as laws of nature, lex naturae in Latin, nomos tis physios in Greek, they don't mean by those phrases what we would mean. So, for example, um, uh, when Thrasymachus in Plato says uh, that the, it's natural for stronger people to rule over weaker people, he says this is a law of nature. That's one of the earliest uses we have of the phrase. It's a law of nature. Um, and he doesn't mean what we mean by law. It's not the same way that gravity is a law of nature, right? Uh, he means something more like in a state of nature, this is what happens. Um, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and mean people uh, beat up the nice people. So instead of looking for, and, and they're right, it's, it's whenever you see phrases that would translate as law of nature directly in antiquity, they don't really mean what we mean by it. At the same time, though, it's abundantly apparent in all kinds of ancient sources that they think that nature behaves in regular, what we would call law-like ways, that there are rules to how nature behaves. And not only that, but they use legalistic terminology to describe those behaviors. They may not use exactly the phrase law of nature, although in, in Lucretius, this, this, um, uh, he does use the word foitus, which is another word for law. It's a word for treaty or covenant uh, more directly, but it, it can also mean law. Uh, he does use that phrase, and just nobody had noticed it because they were looking for lex. Uh, but my basic point in all this is we shouldn't be looking for the phrase law of nature as the indicator of when people start thinking about nature as being law-like. We have all kinds of other clues. If they say that nature is rule-bound, if they say that nature behaves in absolutely regular ways, and if they use all kinds of legalistic terminology to describe this, then it's pretty clear that they're thinking about nature as being law-like. And this emerges out of, as I said, these ideas that, that these ethical ideas that ethics should be grounded in nature, the, the, the mirror image of that is the idea that nature is, in fact, uh, behaving in ways that are uh, legalistic or, or uh, law-like. And uh, David Sedley, um, it, it, when he was discussing this book in, in a review he wrote, uh, actually added to this idea. And he said, you know, he, he thinks that... Um, the reason that happens in Rome is because the Romans are the first people to codify law in a certain kind of way. And so they're thinking very hard about how to write down and codify law, and at the same time thinking about nature and what is natural. And so thinking about nature in terms of codification in just this way. So that's kind of interesting, I think. Oh, I think it's interesting, too. And I think... Um I'll just mention for our listeners, um, we won't have time to talk about the entire chapter, but there's actually an entire chapter that looks at the import of what you just referred to, I think, as legalistic terminology and looking at the importance of rhetoric um, and judicial rhetoric in particular 
in the work of Seneca as an example of kind of showing us how important this kind of judicial rhetoric was for sort of developing this world making and linking up ideas of law and nature in really, really interesting ways. So for listeners who are particularly interested in this way of thinking about the history of these ideas from a perspective that prioritizes rhetoric and content and not just um, sort of terminology that looks familiar to us in a certain way, chapter four is a really beautiful example of that. So as we move from chapter four to chapter five, and yeah, I was just kind of blitzing over that whole chapter just to make sure that we can get to some of the later parts of the book, we move to arguments that start in the previous chapter. So you bring us into the theory or the idea of the theory ladenness of observation in chapter four, and then kind of continue to explore and explode out this idea of observation and what that looks like and, and how that works for the people you're looking at in chapter five. So chapter five takes us more definitively into a study of seeing, and it's called the embeddedness of seeing. Chapter five considers arguments about observational certainty through exploring the physical and physiological pathways of observation, in particular in the work of two thinkers, Ptolemy, who worked on problems of seeing in the context of mathematical optics, and Galen, who worked on problems of seeing in the context of physiology. Now, both of these men deployed their own observations as evidence for their claims, and both of them dealt with the physics of vision and mechanisms of perception. So this is a really interesting case study that brings us into observation and perception and the ways that this is imbricated in this threefold chord um, that you described earlier. Now, one of the important things that's happening in this chapter that lays the foundation of what's to come is you start talking about the importance of likeness, of kinds of things, and the ways that ideas of likeness and kinds of things shape the way Galen and Ptolemy think about observation and thus um, shape this aspect of the relationship between observation, world-making, and science in this context. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. Um, can you talk about the importance of this idea of like affects like in this context, and what do we need to understand about this to understand the points that you're making here about world-making and Roman science? The, the, the issue, the, the chapter comes in partly because um, in having talked about the importance of observation for an understanding of nature earlier, um, one of the things that, that is a frequent bugbear uh, when you work on ancient science, uh, early science, in fact, this stuff comes up right through uh, the history of sciences, but there, there seems to be more of it the farther back you go, are, are improbable or implausible claims about the world. I already mentioned garlic and magnets, but there are all kinds of entities uh, running around the ancient universe that we would now say don't exist. Uh, and and it's, it's a, there's a wonderful catalog of them that you could come up with if you wanted to. And often, I think the impression people get is that there's a certain kind of failure of uh, care being taken. People are letting their, their theoretical beliefs about the world uh, override their actual drive to go out and observe uh, or look at the world. And I want to, in this chapter, start to, to bring that back down to earth and show that, in fact, these people are being very, very careful about how they observe the universe, and yet still having... Um, what later turn out to be blind spots. They're missing things about how 
certain relations work because they they think they understand a certain point well enough, but it turns out that history is going to prove them wrong. They have no way of knowing that history is going to prove them wrong in just this aspect. But there's something that they might be very, very comfortable about that turns out to have uh, issues later on. And that helps to explain how the whole system eventually gets replaced by something else. But by diving into the system, by going in and looking at the very, very fine-toothed details of how, for example, the ancients believed that vision works in this particular instance, how do the eyeballs get impressions from the outside world that then somehow pass into wherever our consciousness is located, and that's still up for grabs in antiquity. Not everybody agrees that it's in the brain, although both of our current actors do believe it's in the brain, Ptolemy and Galen. Somehow stuff... I look out my window now, I see a red pickup truck, I actually do see a red pickup truck out my window, uh, and so somehow that image is coming from outside, off of what we presume to be a real red pickup truck, into my consciousness, and I can think about it, and I can talk about it. So Ptolemy and Galen both want to explore how that process happens, but they do it from very, very different angles. Galen's a doctor who is cutting open um, animals and looking inside at how their bodies are built. He's isolating particular nerves, figuring out what they do. He severs the nerves, sees what the monkey can't do anymore. And so he, he knows, he maps out from the brain, he believes consciousness resides in the brain because that's where all the nerves go, and the brain obviously is impressed by the nerves. We get information from the nerves, but also the brain causes the nerves to act so that I can make my hand move by thinking about making my hand move. Um, so he figures out that consciousness must be in the brain, and then he figures out what channels the the we would now call it information. He doesn't call it information, but what are the physical channels that move the visual image from the eyeballs? And he knows that's where vision's happening because when you poke it, you can't see anymore. From the eyeballs into the brain. And in doing that, he also wants to speculate or think about or talk about how the information then comes from outside, from the red pickup truck into the eyeball. But he really only has mastery uh, over, or he's really mostly interested in, I should say. He's mostly interested in what's happening inside from the eyeball into the brain to get that visual impression into the brain. Ptolemy, on the other hand, is working in mathematical optics. He's very, very interested in how um, how visual images move uh, from objects into our eyes. What kinds of things could cause the, the visual image to refract? So if we put a piece of glass in the way, it'll cause the, the image to bend in some way, and he can, he can test that and play with it. It can reflect. Uh, we can have optical illusions, and he tries to explain a great number of optical illusions in his optics uh, in order to essentially exert control over it. And so in tracing out the lines that visual images move in, I'm very carefully here trying to avoid using the word light. Uh, ancient theories of optics don't typically deal with the motion, well, they never deal with the motion of uh, rays of light or anything like that. Instead, what they do is typically have rays being sent from the eyeball out to the world, like feeler sticks in a sense, that then poke at things in the world, and that's how we learn about things visually. So it's quite the opposite of what uh, we now, uh, how we now would see it. And so Ptolemy's tracing the movement of these visual rays out from the eyeball to figure out how they can be tricked, how can they be fooled, and how can we understand those tricks in order to get around certain kinds of objections to the very kind of science he is doing. Because both Ptolemy and Galen rely on observation, crucially, as the way of grounding all of the science that they're doing. But they're working in a context where the, there are these annoying 
skeptics running around saying, how do you know you can trust vision? Vision is easily fooled. There are all kinds of optical illusions we know about. I can talk about them. I can point to this optical illusion, that optical illusion. So it's clear the eyeballs can be fooled. So how can you trust what your eyeballs are telling you? And so Galen, by trying to trace all the movements of the visual image from the eyeball to the brain and from the eyeball out to the rest of the world, but more vaguely in that case, Ptolemy, trying to carefully trace all the movements from the objects in the world into the eyeball, and then a little more vaguely from the eyeball into the brain. Uh, both of them are trying to ground their observation-based sciences. And what's interesting is that for both of them, something happens at the interface between the eyeball and the world. And it's there that they both invoke this law of nature that says that things that are similar affect each other. It's a little bit like sympathy, I suppose, but they don't ever use sympathy talk for this. And this is the idea that like affects like. And so for Galen, uh, the main stuff that operates inside our nerves is something called pneuma. And this is something like atmospheric air, but seems to be a little more refined version of it. Uh, and he essentially posits its existence because we can see its effects. We know that when the brain sends out a message to the hands, it can cause the hand to move. And that's this stuff called pneuma going out to the hands. When I poke my hand with a pin, uh, that sends information up to my brain that says, ouch, and that's physically uh, this pneuma stuff moving. And so Galen traces the channels for this visual pneuma out to the eyeball and then has that interacting with what he thinks fills up the world, this pneuma that fills up the world, which then allows you to see. So by sending the pneuma out to the surface of the eyeball and touching the world's pneuma, we can then see what's out in the world instantaneously. I open my eyes and I can see the farthest planets in a second. And it's that idea of like affects like that allows Ptolemy to bridge the interface between his visual rays going out from the eyeball uh, and into the brain at the eyeball in order to get the visual information into the brain. And it's that same spot where Galen is able to do the same thing. But it turns out that's a bit of a black box. They say like affects like, and in a sense we can now, we, we might now call that hand waving because it turns out that that's not how it works. But for both of them, that's the fundamental key, like affects like, and that's this fundamental law of nature that allows vision. Right. And this is super important more broadly to, at least from my perspective, right, from that of one reader to the work that the book's doing, because ultimately the book is also trying to help us understand world making. So what was part of their world and how can we understand their world as a way of engaging with um, their science? in a way that's not just engaging in terms of judgment of, well, they were right or they were wrong. And so this like effects like is part of their world. And this is something that this chapter really beautifully brings out. So just as sympathy or like effects like likeness is part of their world, so is antipathy. And in continuing to um, develop this idea of the Roman world, their world making, and to help us understand what it might look like as historians of science to not engage with these ideas from the perspective of, oh, that's just silly, that's wrong, that's true or false from our perspective, but rather to engage with it from a perspective that tries to understand fact-making in the context of the world-making that's happening, you bring us into another chapter that turns from likeness 
to antipathy. And this is the chapter six that we started talking about at the very early stage of this conversation, with the famous garlic and magnets, um, and in very many ways, the heart of the book. So to get us started, um, can you just, I'm just going to leave this to you, garlic and magnets, what's going on here? And what do we need to understand about this to understand the larger points you're making in this part of the book about antipathy and tropes of antipathy as they inform this garlic and magnet story? Um, so I, I mentioned earlier on that, that this claim that garlic affects magnets is, is to me, a startling one because everybody who invokes it in antiquity uh, right through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period uh, doesn't seem to think that this is a problematic claim. It's, it's very straightforward for them. It's just a fact about the world in the same way that I might say heavy things fall to the earth. Um, it's just something we all know about how the world works. And it strikes me that it's exactly as obvious to me uh, for probably exactly the same reasons that they're just wrong about that, that garlic doesn't cancel out the effects of magnets. But having said that, I've never actually tried it. And I think it's important to my claim that I've never tried. I don't need to try it. We don't need to start running out and rubbing garlic on all of our magnets in the same way that they thought they didn't need to run around and start ruining all their magnets by rubbing garlic on them just to make sure that this thing they all knew was true about the world was in fact true. And the problem turns out to be quite infectious because even if I do say, okay, hang on a second, you've put your finger on something here, Darren, maybe you should go try it out. Maybe you should run downstairs to your kitchen and get some garlic and pull a magnet off the fridge and rub the garlic on it and see if the magnet still sticks to the fridge. And then I think, well, that's not really a lodestone, though. They weren't working with fridge magnets. I would have to then get a lodestone. But if we look at the number of claims of false things in antiquity that we now don't believe in, um, there are so many of those that we don't have time to test all of them. And even if we did, we wouldn't be able to get the funding to test them. It doesn't make sense to start trying to test every stupid claim that we find uh, that every single human being makes. We have to trust our intuitions on quite a number of things and say that just doesn't fit with everything else we know about how garlic works, everything else we know about how magnet, magnets work. If we were to put those two things together in our heads, garlic and magnets, and try and think of how they might affect each other, it is in fact a kind of category mistake. It's just that magnets aren't garlic-like, and garlic doesn't have any electromagnetic properties to speak of that could significantly impact the magnet. I don't even have to worry about testing it. Now, I could go test it, but as soon as I've done that, I then open up a book like uh, uh, Delaporta's natural magic from, from uh, the 16th century. And I'm confronted with a whole bunch of other things, right? An example I use in the book is the idea that uh, bears, bears love honey. Delaporta mentions this to us. And then he tells us why bears love honey. Bears love honey because they actually have really bad eyesight. They have this cloudy humor that fills up their heads. And so they go after honey because when they go after honey, the bees then sting them all over their bodies, which causes the humor to flow from their heads out to the swellings of the stings, and then they can see better. Now, again, we don't have to test that, right? We, we, we don't think of bears as having cloudy humors in their heads. We don't think of stings and bruises and, and injuries as moving humors around in the body anymore. And so for theoretical reasons, we can save ourselves the trouble. But again, if we did think it was important for some reason to go out and test that, we still haven't entirely solved the problem because there is such a long, long list of these things. And it just doesn't make sense to go questioning 
every theoretical commitment you have because of uh, your lack of experience in it. Oh, that doesn't make sense. I said that wrong. It doesn't. Um, it's unfeasible to to test every single wrong claim that we find in an ancient or medieval source, just as it's uh, unfeasible to test every single theoretical commitment we currently have. In fact, um, we use our theory to, to hold together the ways in which we understand the world, the facts of the world make sense within it. And it's only when some particular fact starts to get annoying that we need to go test it then, right? And so by mentioning garlic and magnets, it then becomes the sort of thing we may want to test. Or if it turns out we do test it and garlic screws up magnets, then we have a problem on our hands and we've got to start really exploring uh, what the issue is there. Thank you so much. And I think um, listeners probably can already get a sense that the kinds of questions and the kinds of articulations that you're giving us that apply just as well to philosophy of science as they apply to history of science. And this is one of the really wonderful things about the book is, um, especially at this point, chapter six is kind of a fulcrum, or at least in the experience of the reader, it's kind of a fulcrum that moves us from this really wonderfully rich elaboration of the context of um, this Roman world-making to considering in a, in a more pointed way the implications of this context and of this treatment for how we understand um, some really important and pertinent issues in the philosophy of science more broadly. And as we move to the last few chapters of the book, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, we start seeing more and more of this very explicit engagement with some of the most important um, questions, especially concerning realism and observation and fact-making that occupy philosophers of science right now. So we won't have time to talk about all of them in detail. Um, I just want to sort of signal some of these before we talk about some of them in detail, but I'll mention that chapter 7 turns our attention explicitly to questions of ontology by focusing on the study of ancient astrology and the issues of causation in ancient astrology and sort of, I think, helps us understand ontology in this context um, in a very detailed and very interesting way. And then chapter eight kind of urges us to move away from understanding ancient science in terms of isms and proposes that we can understand Roman thought as a series of concentric schools and sort of explores the implications um, of that and does a whole lot of other things um, along the lines of that. Now, as we move to chapter nine, though, and I want to focus on this because this is something that I think speaks very explicitly to both historians and philosophers in terms of our craft, in terms of what we're doing when we open our books, when we um, create stories, when we think about the basic raw materials of how we are actually producing the kinds of books that we're talking about right now, chapter nine takes us into a very carefully elaborated and very important argument. Chapter nine opens by um, proposing, among other things, a way of thinking about realism in history. Realism is a problem for history, as you say it here, and history is a problem for realism. And you talk about the relationship in this part of the book between realist ideas, ideas of realism, and history, um, both from the perspective of the, the work of the historian, but also historical case studies and how they inform how we think about realism. 
So I want to ask you um, to talk, um, just kind of bring us into this chapter by talking about this. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between realism as you're proposing it as a philosophical problem in this part of the book and its tensions when it meets up with history? What's important for us to understand about those tensions, about how you're thinking about those tensions, in order for us to understand what you'll then go on to propose as a way to reconcile these tensions? So, I, in, in this section, um, I, I, I try to reconcile what has come out of my reading of Roman science, problems like garlic and magnets, problems like theories and vision in antiquity, where otherwise very intelligent people working in otherwise very uh, rigorous ways come to what are patently uh, not the same answers as we come up with today when we employ uh, what look to be similar methods, similarly careful methods. And they came to believe from their work that the things that they were dealing with in the world, psychic pneuma in the case of Galen, uh, uh, sympathy and antipathy, astrological influence in the case of Ptolemy, they came to believe that those things were real entities and forces in the world. In the same way that when I turn on my light switch uh, and start allowing electrons to flow through the circuit there uh, and have a light bulb come on, I believe that those electrons are real things. I've never seen an electron in any any concrete sense, but uh, every experience I've had with what I'm told are electrons uh, is consistent in a certain way and leads me to believe that these things are real. And I get on airplanes and trust that they'll fly and so on. And so, um, but having said that, when you start believing that the things your science tells you are true about the world, when you start believing that those entities and forces are real things, you may have a problem as a historian of science insofar as that's exactly what caused uh, a lot of the early histories of science to to take the kind of triumphalist, uh, progressivist views, uh, positions that they took, which is to say that uh, what's good in ancient science is the stuff that leads us directly into the right things that we now know, uh, and what's bad in ancient science is the stuff that were the byways and highways that went off from that, that were mistaken channels, mistaken theories, mistaken ideas, mistaken observations. And so history, uh, when faced with realism, can be pushed, it's not inevitable, but it can be pushed towards a certain kind of what uh, what we used to call Whiggism. I guess we still call it that, we just don't talk about it so much anymore. And at the same time, from a philosophy of science point of view, the history of science poses some very serious challenges for realism. And there's a traditional way of framing this, uh, known as the pessimistic induction, which is that when you say that we can trust that electrons are real, because we can manipulate them, because we're successful in handling them. When you say that, and you then look back at the history of science, and you look at the number of times people have um, uh, been predictively successful with their sciences, the number of instances where people have thought that they were manipulating, say, phlogiston or psychic pneuma, but were wrong about that, but we're still getting predictive success out of it, uh, that should give us pause because these people had the same reasons for believing in the realism of uh, uh, phlogiston or psychic pneuma as I now have for believing in electrons, which is to say, I think I can manipulate it, uh, manipulate them, and I think that, um, well, my theory is consistent. I mean, there's it, it a kind of cluster of things that holds together there, but 
And so looking at the history of science, looking at the number of ways in which people have been wrong in the past about what they thought were real objects should give us pause about positing realism for things that we can manipulate just because we can manipulate them. And philosophers have a number of different answers to try and solve these problems, but that at its base are the problems that, that realism has for history and history has for philosophical scientific realism. Mm-hmm. Now, despite this, you have a whole chapter here um, toward the end of the book where you say, yes, but still you're, you're espousing as an author an explicitly realist position. So can you talk us through that? So despite these problems for realism that the pessimistic induction and other kinds of challenges um, might pose, how do you come to, and, and I'm asking you to talk about this as it um, occurs in the book because you have a very beautiful elaboration of this in the book, but can you say a little bit about how you nonetheless get to a position where you are professing to be a realist by the end of this book despite these problems? Um, Part of the issue, and I think it's a bigger part of the issue than than it appears at first glance, uh, but part of the issue is that when I try to understand what uh, a historical actor thinks about how the world works. One of the things that we use as a touchstone is the actual phenomenon that they're investigating. So when Seneca tries to understand how thunder happens, um, the way in, one of the key ways in which I understand him, I read what he says about thunder uh, uh, and so on, but at the same time, I triangulate that with what I know thunder how I know thunder to behave, what thunder is, without importing my own uh, uh, my own um, biases, uh, my own modern scientific views onto what thunder is. Just phenomenologically, what is it that thunder does? What is it that Seneca is trying to explain about that booming noise, about the clouds, and so on? And so, by using these phenomena as touchstones by which to understand our historical actors, I think we are in fact committing ourselves to at least a weak kind of realism. We're saying that there's something actually going on there that we can use uh, in order for us to use it uh, to inform our historical understanding or our philosophical understanding of what the ancients uh, are saying or any historical actor for that matter. And I think that commits us to a little more realism um, uh, than than, uh, we might realize. And at the same time, I just have this uh, uh, intuition about, say, electrons, gravity, and so on, that that says that, you know, we have this incredible success in manipulating these things. Um, uh, uh, and so we have a justification for believing that these things are real. At the same time, that's gotten a lot of historical actors into a lot of trouble in the past. And that claim, saying that we're successful in manipulating it, proves that something about its realism. Uh, in fact, I think it's a, it's kind of a bad argument, but it motivates a kind of intuition about realism. And once I've got the intuition floating, I then um, try to to see if there's a way of justifying that realism within the context of all of the historical reasons that might make us pessimistic about realism. And I'm very careful to sort of move uh, my argument, situate my argument within what is a very rich philosophical literature on these issues um, by bringing to bear what is, in fact, a much 
older set of examples than is typically used. Philosophers of science tend not to move back before about the 19th century when they're talking about historical examples uh, that might contradict modern realism. But in fact, I think it's very interesting to move all the way back uh, into the Roman period, Greek period even, uh, to look at how issues of realism, issues of success play out in this very, very foreign territory. Thank you so much. And so one of the um, last things that I want to ask you about is just a, a very brief elaboration of this. So at the end of the book, after you've very, I think, beautifully elaborated um, the principle that you've just mentioned, um, that is the historian's own experiences of the natural world shape, inevitably shape how she makes sense of her historical subjects and their experiences of the world. So this commits us to a kind of realist position. You end the story um, sort of proposing that we might think about these problems in terms of coherence. So you end the story, as you put it, as an epistemological coherentist, and you suggest that we might fruitfully move forward as historians of science according to a principle that you call coherence charity. So understanding um, that is how Romans made sense of their world means paying attention to how their best descriptions cohere with each other and also cohere with people's experiences of the world. So could, so could you perhaps bring us to our conclusion by talking about this importance of coherence um, to undergirding the method of moving forward from this that you're proposing for us in this part of the book? The, the, the version, um, I, I, well, I guess the, the, the problem that motivates that, that motivates my move to coherence is that if I say in the end that I'm happy to say that um, I'm justified in believing that electrons are real, and then I say at the same time, and for the same reasons, someone like Galen is justified in thinking that psychic pneuma is real. I then am faced with uh, what appears to be uh, a realism that is ready to accept different things as being real uh, over time in the world. And the way to alleviate the tension there, one way to alleviate the tension there anyway, which I think is very fruitful, is to give up our sort of naive uh, correspondence-based um, ideas about truth. When I say that something is true about the world, we instinctively want to think, if I say it is true that that pickup truck I was talking about earlier is red, uh, that the reason that that's true, that sentence is true, is that the pickup truck itself really just is red. Then my statement, that pickup truck is red, corresponds with the fact that that pickup truck is red. But there are all kinds of philosophical problems with that correspondence theory of truth that people have been poking at. And there's no reason why we need to keep that as our theory of truth. In fact, there are other theories of truth available. One of them is pragmatic theory of truth, which says that uh, if I say that pickup truck is red and every conceivable test I can come up with to check whether that's red passes the test and says, yes, it's red, then I'm justified in believing that that pickup truck is red. Mm -hmm. Then um, this alleviates considerable amount of pressure on the problem I posed before, because now Galen is allowed to say that his pneuma is real because every test he's thrown at it, and he's been really careful to throw a lot of tests at it, every test he's thrown at it, has it come up as being, in fact, controllable, manipulable, uh, and its effects are visible in the world, and therefore it's real in the same way as modern electrons are real. Um, and 
what I paint at the end of the book then is an epistemological uh, uh, picture that that instead of looking for um, grounds for theories of knowledge that transcend experience in some way or um, uh, that will allow us to 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 point back at our ancient actors and say what where it is they went wrong what was wrong with their method that led them uh, down these wrong alleys instead of trying to find some kind of trans historical criteria that we can impose retroactively back on historical actors that will say why they went wrong and then give us confidence to say we are not making that mistake therefore we can posit realism I don't want to do that instead what I want to say is that uh, we're justified in believing things are real when they cohere with everything else we know about the world and every single test we can throw at those objects as we try and investigate them. And if all of that experience and theory comes together into a coherent whole and there is nothing telling against it, then we're justified in believing that those things are in fact real and true about the world. But it does necessitate giving up, as I said, a correspondence theory of truth, which not everybody's going to be happy with but I think works quite well. And it avoids the philosophical problems that come out of um, uh, attempts to solve the pessimistic induction, this idea that because uh, uh, historical actors have been wrong in the past about what their theories told them, we might be wrong now. Philosophers have tried all kinds of ways to solve that problem. I pick at these in some detail in, in chapters 9 and 10 to show why they're all insufficient. Uh, and, and then... Um, uh, but as a consequence, I have to give up correspondence theory of truth, and I end up with a pragmatic theory of truth and a coherentist epistemology. Well, Darren, thank you so much. Um, as I hope is very, I'm sure is very obvious for listeners, you're very eloquent in the co course of our, our conversation and in the course of the book on a number of different topics that I think it's very rare to see somebody bringing together. So theories of truth, um, philosophies of science, and also a very detailed and a very eloquently wrought picture of world making in early Roman texts. And so thank you um, for taking the time to elaborate some of that for us. There's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to get at or, um, or to talk about in the course of our hour. Is there anything in particular? Um, I know we skipped through a bunch of chapters, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers um, no I think we've I think we've covered it in, 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 in a, a pretty good level of detail um, my head is also hurting a little bit from thinking hard <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose I mean a minor thing you mentioned um, uh, rhetoric early on that the practices in rhetoric uh, in antiquity, informing in some ways the ways in which they view nature. And one of the things I just wanted to sort of point out, because people often miss this, if you don't work on um, uh, older material, you often miss the fact that rhetoric as a discipline in antiquity is a lot... Uh, it, it, it is uh, much more dominant as, a, as, a, as an area of thought than it is currently. Uh, we tend to think of rhetoric as the bits of a conversation, the bits of a sales pitch, the bits of an argument that are expendable and unimportant, right? That are meant to fool you into thinking things that you don't really, uh, that aren't really rigorous or correct. Mm -hmm. uh, but the ancients don't see it that way. They have this discipline of rhetoric that they see as central to communication, to, to um, decision making. Um, and it's in fact, 
much of it is rooted in, again, in the law courts. It's, it's unsurprising we end up back there, I guess, as, as a way of rounding out our discussion of the book. But, um, and, and rhetoric in antiquity is one of the places where you see this, um, the, the judicial ideas about nature, the legalistic ideas about nature come to uh, um, some of their fullest fruition. And the reason for that is that um, you have this discipline called logic, you have philosophy, which uses logic, and that can t- tell you um, that can tell you things about particular arguments, whether or not they're valid, uh, and you can come to, based on certain premises, you can come to conclusions that are certain. But it's in rhetoric where you handle things where you're not sure what the answer might be, right? If you're not sure whether or not somebody is the murderer, you then have to weigh probabilities. And that happens in the law court, and that happens under the auspices of this discipline called rhetoric. And that's where rhetoric comes into the sciences in antiquity, because it's how you handle probabilistic arguments in the Roman period. If you want to talk about what is more likely the case, what is less likely the case, what happens most of the time, but not all the time, uh, all of that happens under this uh, under the auspices of this discipline called rhetoric, which is much more rigorous than I think most moderns would tend to think of rhetoric as being. Uh, I, I just did scare quotes in the air there around. But <laughs> I guess you can't hear that. I have scare quote cast an that I sometimes bring to lectures. So maybe I'm <laughs> scare quote cast an S. So, Darren, now that the book is out and it just came out also in 2014 in the new paperback edition, what's next for you? What's um, What project or projects are currently inspiring you? I, uh, I'm up to my ears in uh, a new project that comes out of uh, some of the concerns about likeness, like effects like uh, in this book. And a little project I did, uh, just a chapter for uh, uh, a collected volume last year on Aristotelian uh, inheritance theory, how babies come to look like their parents, uh, which is essentially an issue of likeness and unlikeness. Um, and out of that, I got really interested in this whole class of animals that runs around in the world until uh, well into the 19th century, which are animals that are spontaneously generated, uh, whether it be insects, whether it be mice. If you put socks and some wheat in a jar in a drawer and come back a month later, uh, they will have generated mice for you. Um, and so putrefying matter in my compost bucket outside generates fruit flies and maggots. Um, and this class of animals is kind of fascinating. There's just so much going on in how people think about them, um, that is new to me. And, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm playing around in there, um, with a bit of a deadline I've got in October, there's a lecture series based on this that I'm giving. Uh, so there's a little bit of time pressure, but it also gives me the chance to move from Aristotle through to some later Aristotelianisms, which is not a, a field I've spent a lot of time in, but it's a little bit maybe like the garlic magnets chapter where I'm chasing some ideas from antiquity right up into the early modern period to see what happens to them over time and to see how they change, what gets rejected, what gets kept and why. Uh, and so it's, yeah, spontaneous generation from Aristotle through to, it's not a synthetic history. I'm, I'm picking out uh, moments in there just to talk about some ideas, but, uh, but likeness plays a crucial role because these animals have nothing to be like in any concrete sense. They don't have parents that they're, they're imitating in any kind of phenomenological way. So, so that's where I'm at. Well, Darren, thank you for letting us follow you along the chase and best of luck <laughs> chasing these ideas as well. And I'll look forward to talking with you about that when it's out. So thank you. Congratulations. And it's really been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.
You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us, as always, and we'll see you next time.